Acts 21 and 22 are the passages we're in today. Welcome to folks here and to folks on live stream. We will no doubt see a bump on live stream today of those watching, so we're glad that you're with us as well. I'm going to read the first six verses from Acts 21, and then we're going to talk about two chapters that I think we are going to attempt to pull a theme out of. Acts 21 in verse 1 says, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. We're going to pause right there, and we're going to look at the map because it will be helpful to see what is happening and even the theme that's being drawn out from these couple chapters. So those of us here can probably see this, probably on live stream as well. You can note on the bottom half of that map is a red line. That red line is right here. This is the pathway that Paul is taking to go to Jerusalem. So the section that we are in right now, uh, where Josh left us last week, was right here in Miletus, and the names that were just mentioned are this section right here, as this ship is going through these islands, you'll see in just a moment, he talks about Cyprus being on the left-hand side, and then he's going to come down here to Tyre and Caesarea, and then ultimately to Jerusalem. So this is, a, this is a significant passageway that Paul is taking for our day, no big deal. For Paul's day, on a ship, big deal. Verse 2, it says, And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus... Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, and notice that those words because we're going to come back to those, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Seems pretty direct. And when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So I'm only reading those first six verses to kind of launch us into this text of Scripture. As we come to these two chapters The question that I ask myself, is anything going to stand out? Is anything stand out from two chapters that is a theme? Is there anything that we can notice from those two chapters? Because we get into the latter chapters in the book of Acts, there are some repeating themes. We don't mind repeating because the Scripture is repeating things. But is there something here that maybe is a little bit different that we can notice? And I would say that there is something to notice here. I pointed out that long journey that Paul is about to face, but I'm going to sum it up this way, and this is the title of the message that I've given today, is Courage for the New Year. I think these passages, these two chapters, demonstrate an extraordinary amount of courage on the part of Paul. And so I want to talk about courage uh, today. Let me give you a little bit of an overview as you look at your Bible and you see where I'm getting this from. 
Going back a chapter in chapter 20, in verse 22, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me. I think most of us here would say that we want to know what's going to happen. Paul knows he's going somewhere that the Spirit's telling him to go. There are dangers there, and he doesn't know what those dangers are. I think that would raise the blood pressure of most anyone. In verse um, chapter 21, verses 4 and 12, there are attempts made to keep him from going to Jerusalem. And in verse 14, it says that he's not going to be persuaded. So these were, these were intense discussions about doing this, and he would not be persuaded. There's this long journey that we pointed out with terrifying possibilities. And in chapter 23, he faces an angry mob, which literally would have pulled him limb from limb had he not been saved by the Roman soldiers. So this whole thing is a huge crisis that's building and building and building that requires a level of courage that we're going to see in Paul's life. Now, we know he's not superhuman because a few chapters back when Paul came to Corinth, I pointed out that later Paul is going to write that when he came to Corinth, he said he was, he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I don't know the last time you trembled. I mean, I don't think he's just saying that figuratively. I think he's literally looking at his hand and it's shaking because his whole body is under such duress over what's happening that he's afraid. So this is not a superhuman guy. This is a guy we see in these chapters who has an enormous amount of courage. And so I want to ask the question, where did that come from? Is there anything in these chapters that we can see where Paul draws on to have courage. So I just want to stop here, and I want you to engage your own mind. Some of you have probably done this already, but as you cross over into the new year, what do you need courage for? What do you need courage for? I was going to make a list, and I just thought it's just going to, there's just, there's an endless amount of possibilities to a list, because you need courage for everything. You need courage to go to a new job. You need courage to stay in that job. You need courage to get married. You say, oh, no, all we need is love to get married, man. No, once you get into marriage, you need courage to stay married. You need courage to have children. You need courage to raise children. You need courage to have conversations. You need courage to join a church. You need courage to stay in a church. You need courage to be a widow or a widower. I mean, where do you not need courage? At what point in your life can you say, I don't fear anymore, I don't need to have courage? So I'm just simply asking you at the very beginning, there may be something that just comes full circle, I mean, just right in front of your face. I need courage for this. What do you need courage for? And here's the follow-up question to that. Where are you going to draw strength for that courage? One of the things I hope to demonstrate, it's going to be a little bit before we actually get to these chapters in the book of Acts, because I want to talk about this. Courage is not exclusive to Christians. So I'm not saying that the only people who are courageous in this life are Christian people, because everybody knows that's not the case. I mean, there are people in a moment of time who are going to jump on a grenade to save those guys in their infantry, men and women, 
And they're not Christians, some of them. There's courage that's being demonstrated all over our world right now in different ways from people who wouldn't be Christian at all. So what is it distinctly about this passage that a Christian person can draw from to have courage? Because we can just make this message very simple, and I could just simply say, if you're going to have courage, then just have grit. Just have determination. Just pull it from within. That's not what Paul does, and that's not what Christians should do. So what is distinct about this courage? So I've got two questions that I want to ask. One is, what exactly is courage? Let's just talk about it. If it's not just distinctly Christian, what is courage? And then secondly, we'll get into this text. Where did Paul find courage? Is there anything in the text that we can point to and find that? What is courage? Again, the reason I'm talking about this here is because I think we could look at a passage like this and be a little dismissive. When we get to the mob scene, I mean, it truly is a mob scene. They're using words of a mob scene. It's violent, angry. They're after this one guy. It's the very kind of situation none of us would ever want to be in, and few, if any of us, will ever find ourselves in. (laughs) And it'd be very easy to say, well, if I ever got in a situation like that, then I would need courage. I want to try and normalize the need for courage today. I think we see here some just incredible circumstances of courage so that we can see how how all of us need to operate on a regular basis with the things that we face. I want you to see you need this. You need this. I want you to see that you need this if you're a teenager, that you need courage. I want you to see that there are older people in here who are facing circumstances in life. They need courage. I want to normalize courage. I want you, as we end this time, to pray and say, and this is what I'm hoping you will pray, I'm hoping you will all pray, God, I need courage for blank, and you will name it. (laughs) That you will actually need courage for this, and you'll name it and ask God for it and act on this message this morning. I want to give some illustrations here about courage just to help us to think about it a little bit beyond uh, just what maybe is assumed about courage. Uh, A few months back, Pastor Pete and I read a book that was, um, actually we both listened to it, um, about the D.C. Sniper. Do you remember the D.C. Sniper? Um, The D.C. Sniper, for those who were too young at the time or don't remember, was was shooting people indiscriminately. The thing about the D.C. sniper that was so difficult for the FBI and the various other entities that were working on it was that there was no profile. It was very, very difficult to profile the situation. I think the book, by the way, those of you who listen when we talk about a book recommendation, the book is, I I think, called Call Me God because that's what he put in one of his letters uh, that he left at a scene. It's a fascinating look at how they caught these guys. But the thing that was so fearful about it was there was no profile. There was a woman by the name of Ann Patchett who wrote an article in the New York Times at that time capitalizing on this 
fear that people didn't know the kind of person that this individual was looking to target. And so what happened was people were not going to shopping stores, people were staying at home, people wouldn't go outside. In that area, there was a lot of fear because there was no profile. And this is what this woman said in this article. She said, quote, We are always looking to make some sort of sense out of murder in order to keep safely it safely at bay. I do not fit the description. I do not live in that town. I would have never gone to that place. In other words, murder, death, bad things happen there, and I never go there. But what happens when you can't say that, when there is no one description, when there is no single place? Where do you go, then, to find your peace of mind or courage? So what I'm hoping to do here in talking about courage is to say that we are always looking, kind of like what she said, to find what the description is and to be able to move away from that because we don't fit that. That person got cancer because they ate junk food, and I don't eat junk food, so therefore... And so all kinds of things that we do in order to stay away, but when dangerous situations come, what are we going to do? Where are we going to draw on that courage? So I would like to give a definition of courage here to pull through so that we can think about it. Courage is the willingness to put myself at risk because of what I value. It's willingness to put myself at risk because of what I value. It's going against the natural instinct of self-preservation because of the greater choice to love. Now, let me give two biblical examples. Again, this is under the question, what is courage, before we actually get into these chapters. We give two biblical examples. One of them is Joshua. I'm using this example because four times in the first chapter of the book of Joshua, it says... Be strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous. It's almost like God is saying, I have this. I have this situation. The only thing that's going to mess it up, Joshua, is if you're not courageous. So I need you to be strong and I need you to be courageous. And he says it over and over and over again. Here's the second example. That's Esther. Her uncle Mordecai says to her in Esther chapter 4 and verse 14, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And her famous response is, If I perish, I perish. So here's why I'm taking this definition. It's the willingness to put myself at risk because of what I value. Both Joshua and Esther valued something more than their current situation, more than their own lives. They valued the promises that they had from God. I think if we spent time in those books and those lives, we could prove that They they valued the promises they had from God. And at the very center of that, it wasn't just sayings they valued. They valued God himself. But they actually valued the character of God, so therefore they were willing to put themselves at risk. 
So again, as we get into these two chapters, we don't want to think to ourselves, well, if I have a really, really bad situation, then I might need courage. This is a message, when we talk about courage, about valuing things, about valuing the right things. This is why courage isn't distinctly a Christian value or a Christian trait. Because non-Christians value things, and non-Christians can do extremely courageous things because of what they value, and not to minimize any of those things they value at all. But I'm talking today primarily to Christian people here and on live stream, and so I want to ask us what we value. Let me illustrate this just a little bit differently with a couple other um, just illustrations Back in 2004, then-Senator John McCain wrote an article called In Search of Courage. Here's what he said. I, I really like what he said here. He said, courage is like a muscle. The more we exercise it, the stronger it gets. I sometimes worry that our collective courage is growing weaker from disuse. Courage is like a muscle. A couple years ago, I read a book called Fall and Rise, the story of 9-11. This is probably over the last five years at the top of one of the best books I've read. If you're into like stuff that happened on 9-11, this is a go-to book. This is a phenomenal book from the perspective of survivors and those who perished that day and people who are related to them. Fantastic book. As I was going back to look for the title of this book, I I scrolled down and there was this little blurb promoting the book, and here's what it said. Fall and rise will move, shock, inspire, and fill hearts with love and admiration for the human spirit as it triumphs in the face of horrifying events. I wanted to give that illustration because to John McCain's point, courage is like a muscle. 9-11 was the, the, the flexing of the muscles of courage of thousands and thousands of people, even a nation, to come together on that particular event. Courage is a human virtue. We don't want to discount acts of courage today, but I do want to look at Christian courage and what Christian courage is. So that brings us to our second question, where did Paul find courage? I think the other question that needs to be asked based upon what we just looked at, what did Paul value? Because this isn't just some instinctual response that comes out of nowhere. What did Paul value? It's not self-preservation. It wasn't he was trying to save his life, trying to eke out another year. What did he value? We know from Paul's writings what he valued. He said it. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, he says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that's not a morbid fascination with execution. That's not what Paul's boasting in. Paul was boasting that in this one death, All of the sins of mankind was put in that one death, and all deaths were put in that one death. And because it was nailed to the cross, Paul didn't have to pay for his sin. Jesus paid for his sin, and he valued that. By the way, today, if you're listening here or on live stream and you are not a Christian, 
you can certainly listen to a message on courage and walk away and have some principles that you can value from this message. But the most important thing is that you value the right thing, and that's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul valued his relationship with Jesus. This was at the bedrock of what provided him with the ability to have Christian courage at these different other points in his life. When Paul was in Athens in Acts chapter 17, it says that his spirit was provoked. We looked at that. Why was his spirit provoked? His spirit was provoked because Paul's burning passion, the muscle he was exercising in his soul that was instinctual, And it is a muscle to be exercised. The muscle that he was exercising is that there there were people here that could be worshipers of God. And so it was a passion for the glory of God and that people worship God. This is what Paul valued. So when we come to these two chapters, is there anything we have in these chapters for Paul to draw on specifically for his courage. I have two of them that I noted in these chapters. First is guidance from the Holy Spirit. This is where you and I can tap into this. You and I can tap into guidance from the Holy Spirit. And number two, the grounding of his own personal testimony. Let me show you that for the remainder of the message. If you'll look at Acts 20 and verse 22... So we're cutting into these journeys, and he's in a section, uh, or in with a group of people, and here's what he says in verse 22 of Acts chapter 20. Um, So I'm backing up a little bit in Acts 20, in verse 22. He says, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Now, we'll just stop right there for a second and just say, I like resolutions, I like goals, I like aspirations, I don't know how you want to call them, I sort of fluctuate from year to year on the word that I grab hold of that helps me to think about it. I like all of those things, but I wonder, for those of us who have done that for years, if there isn't a little bit of cynicism that comes in, it's kind of like, you know, well, we can plan, but I don't know what's going to happen. Look at last year, I don't know what's going to, you know, and that kind of thing. I just want us to note that the Holy Spirit is guiding Paul and indicating to him that there's trouble ahead. I'm not trying to be a purveyor of bad news because I don't know your year, our year as a church. I don't know that. I'm not assuming there's trouble ahead. But what I'm saying is, is that in the pathways for many of us, the trouble that befalls us is not just happenstance. God knows we're walking into it. He knows we're walking into the storm. He's even guiding us at times into the storm. Now, that may not be of comfort to us, but at least we know that God is not distant from us, that God didn't leave us, that God didn't somehow abandon us. God is not abandoning Paul. He says, I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen. Verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. How many of us would really like that assignment? 
In verse 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, I wanted to start with that because this is what's launching Paul into this courageous journey. It wasn't just some desire to be courageous. It was the, the Holy Spirit who's directing him. And in those verses, we see all three members of the Trinity in those verses. This is a really power-packed section of Scripture. So I would like to say that the first thing we can note in this text of Scripture, in verses, uh, these verses in chapter 21, is the guidance from the Holy Spirit is one of the things that enabled Paul to have courage. In Acts chapter 20, he's in the city of Miletus that we showed back up on the screen that Josh talked about last week. He's on his way to the city of Tyre, and it says in verse 4, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, that's a perplexing statement because it almost appears as if Paul was being told by the Spirit to do one thing, and these people, it says, through the Spirit, we're being told to tell Paul something opposite. Basically, all of these people were listening to the Spirit of God. They were all sensitive to the Spirit of God. They were all spiritual people who were receiving direction from God, and they loved Paul. How do we reconcile this? They loved Paul. If you have a close relationship with someone and you know they're walking into danger, wouldn't you try to stop them? That's what they were trying to do with Paul. They wouldn't have just sent him on his way and said, Godspeed. They would have tried to stop him. So they loved him. It took courage for Paul to be in a group of people, and it says their wives and their children went out and prayed with him on the beach. That's not the Apostle Paul of Acts chapter 7. Wives and children went away from this man. Now they're coming to this man because they love this man. They love his ministry. And so for Paul to leave that, to go to cities where he knows imprisonment and afflictions await him, took courage. But it wasn't just sheer determination. It was guidance from the Holy Spirit. When he comes to Caesarea, he stays with Philip. This is the Philip of Acts chapter 8 who heard the Spirit's voice to go to the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip has four daughters, and they were all prophesying. It's a very interesting text of Scripture. But while he's there, there's a guy named Agabus. And the last time we saw Agabus was in Acts chapter 11. And the last time we heard Agabus say something, it actually came true. So Agabus had said there would be a worldwide famine, and it actually happened. So when Agabus talks, people are not like, oh, yeah, you said that before. They're like, what? What did you say? And so in Acts 21, in verse 11, Agabus comes, and it says he took Paul's belt. This is the belt that would have held the garments together. He took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So here's the Holy Spirit again. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. 
Then Paul answered, what are you doing? I love this. Man, this is so much. I love the passion in this. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow! That's encouraging. That's a, that's a, that's a courageous statement. I do want to point out here, Paul is not a fatalist. Because I think we can think that too. We can just think, well, you know what? Some people just kind of get to the point and he didn't, he didn't have a wife and children and closed out his bank accounts and I guess just you know, may as well end it this way. Kind of a fatalistic sort of guy. That's not what Paul is. Because at the end of chapter 23, we're not going to read this passage, they determine that one of the ways to extract the truth out of Paul is to scourge him. The same scourging that Jesus had. I mean, this, this is forced interrogation. This is enhanced interrogation with no rules on it virtually. And when he's stretched out, he's literally stretched out. Guy picks up, I'm imagining this, it's not in the text, picks up the cat of nine tails. Paul says, I'm a Roman. And they become afraid. And he isn't scourged. So this is not a guy who's fatalistically trying to heap the most, you know, you know, scary things on himself so that he can exercise courage. This is a guy who is clear-headed in his thinking. What's guiding him? It is the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The point about the guidance of the Holy Spirit is very important for us because there's another section. I'm, I'm hesitant to bring this up, but I decided to put it in because there's no other section quite like this in Scripture. It takes a little bit of explanation, and it, but it fits underneath this point well, and it's not forced. So when Paul finally goes to Jerusalem, he meets with James and the elders. When he's with James and the elders, he's rehearsing the good things God did, and they're rejoicing. And if you read the text there, immediately they launch into a problem. Have you ever been talking to somebody and you know they're listening, but they immediately tell you something that has nothing to do with what you just talked about and it's like what they want to talk about? That's exactly what happened here. There was something that was really on the heart of James and those elders, and the, the issue was because Paul had been with Gentile people it had gotten back to the church at Jerusalem, primarily Jewish people, that Paul was really subjugating the law. He was, um, he was saying that anybody who obey, obeys the principles of the law is wrong, that Paul is anti-law. And so they ask him to do something. They ask him to do something, and this is the weird part. There are these guys in the church in Jerusalem who have taken what appears to be a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow is you're not coming in contact with dead animals, you're not cutting your hair. I guess uh, um, I feel like I should make a joke about COVID and not cutting hair here, but I won't. Um, but they didn't cut their hair and they um, uh, come in contact with the animals. Um, and, and there's a third one, doesn't, doesn't matter. But they had taken this vow. There's nothing wrong with what they were doing. They weren't doing what they were doing in order to become Christians, or else this wouldn't have been part of James and the elders' discussion. But these guys had to fulfill this vow in a particular way, and so what James and the elders tell Paul is, 
in order to put this rumor to rest that anybody who does anything in the Mosaic law is wrong, Paul, if you could go along with them and even fund what they do, there was payment that had to be made with the vow and so forth. If you could go along with this, it would help people to see this principle of Christian liberty from the other side. So if we want to put it in layman's terms, it would be kind of like the people who held to a more strict view on something, though they were not using that to become Christians, they held to this view. And so, Paul, if you would kind of walk in their shoes a little bit, it would help people to understand that you're not telling people, cast off all the rules in life. And the amazing thing is, Paul does it. The amazing part of that is, it really put the very heart of Paul's message at risk. Because Paul's whole message, as he's writing later on, is that we're free from the law. We are saved by grace, and so let's live by grace. So his message of grace really was at risk by doing this. But here's where I'm putting this underneath this point. Guidance from the Holy Spirit can come from God as in our day through his word. It can come from fellow believers, as we see from these other Christians, Agabus and others who talked with Paul along the way. But it can also come through, in his case, James and the elders of the church. And Paul, in humility, recognizes this as a way for him to do something, though it put the very message of his life at risk, he was trusting those people to be spiritual people in advising him, and he went went along with it. I think that took an incredible amount of courage from Paul to do this. Where did that come from? It was guidance from the Holy Spirit. So let me stop here and just ask you, when was the last time you can point to that you received specific guidance from the Holy Spirit. I didn't include in this message the ways that we receive guidance from the Holy Spirit. We've seen some of those as we look through the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, they don't have an entire Bible, so they're receiving that in other ways. We have a completed Bible. The Holy Spirit does not give guidance that is against God's Word. He doesn't do that. Through the years, different people will say, I I think God's leading me to leave my spouse, or I think God's leading me to do this particular thing, and so on and so forth. I think we have to be very, very careful to say, I get this nudge from God to do X, Y, and Z. I think the very first thing we have to do is we have to line that up with Scripture, and I don't mean twisting Scripture. You can twist Scripture to make it say whatever you want it to say. But I mean genuinely, it is a word from the Holy Spirit that emerges from the truth of Scripture that is guiding your life. But when was the last time you received a specific word from the Holy Spirit? I'm talking that you needed courage for something in your life, and the only thing you could think to do is to sit down and read your Bible. And you sat down and read your Bible, and you just said, God, I need something. And you're reading, and you're reading through the book of Matthew or whatever, and then all of a sudden, there is something that is as clear as day to you. We would call that just, it's just the Spirit of God illuminates that to you, and it is a verse that you hang on to. I've mentioned these before. Others have mentioned these before, too. You know, you're, you're not even in your Bible. You're doing something. And you get a text from someone, 
And it is a specific word to you, and they did not know anything that was going on in your life, but you know it was like an arrow that just went right to your heart. That is a specific word from the Holy Spirit. We had a thing at our table here this last week. We just talked about, I can't remember what the devotional was, but there was a question, and two of the members of the, of the people sitting at our table talked about something that had happened to them where there was a verse that was special, and then through some means they received a card or something from somebody, and that specific word was in it. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm talking about here. A specific word from the Holy Spirit. Because when you know that God sees your situation, it gives you courage, even in the midst of something that can be very, very pressured. Guidance from the Holy Spirit. There's a second thing, though, in this text that I think is very important that we'll conclude with today, that Paul received courage from, and it's the grounding of his testimony. Now, before you think, well, I know my testimony, I was saved when I was nine, and da 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 you go through. Before you kind of just push that off as just, well, I already know that, this is the second time that Paul's testimony is given in the book of Acts. And we've pointed out the fact it's not the sensationalism of his testimony that, that it's being repeated. So it's like, well, I don't have a testimony like that. I was saved when I was five, and mine's kind of a boring testimony. No, it's not a boring testimony. You can't, you've got to stop saying that. It's not like this one, but there's a reason that he's saying his testimony. So let me talk about it. So his testimony is going to go from Acts 21 and verse 37. So this whole incident where his testimony is contained, Acts 21 and verse 37, to most of chapter 22. So most of that is his testimony. Let me give you what's going on in this passage to help us to understand that Paul is giving this testimony with a clear and a sound mind in the midst of all of this. In verse 34 of chapter 21, it says that there was an uproar. They had to carry him in verse 35 because of the, quote, violence of the crowd. And then he asks to speak to the crowd. (laughs) Now, when was the last time somebody was just, have you ever had somebody that's just irate with you? Or that was in the area? Maybe it's somebody you were shopping at Walmart, somebody was like really, really angry. People tend to not go towards that, they go away from that. Now imagine hundreds of people like that, maybe maybe thousands, I don't know, but I would certainly think hundreds of people who are violent. I mean, they are, they are in a huge lather, and Paul says, can I speak to them? And in the text, it specifically mentions not only that he spoke to them, but what language he spoke to them in. So the, Greek, the Roman people get him, he talks in Greek to the Romans, then he turns around and talks in Hebrew, which would have been Aramaic, because that was the spoken language, to the people. And the text notes that. And when he does that, they, hu- they quiet down. Because you know when someone speaks in a certain dialect, sometimes you have to lean a little closer to hear them. They lean a little closer to hear him, but he's speaking to them in their own tongue, which indicates he really wants to draw them in and not push them away. He also does this, I discovered in my study. It says that he gestured. 
In his day, there's no public amplification system. There's no one to say, hey, guy, hey, everybody, this guy's ready to talk. But because there were orators and people who did this for a living, there was a gesture that indicated, I'm ready to begin. I'm pointing all of this out to say he is not in some sort of flurry of emotions about all of this. He's thinking very clearly about all of this. What's grounding him? The, the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the grounding of his own testimony. He's kind to them. I think this is interesting. In verse 3, he says that he is zealous for God even as they are zealous for God. He's kind to them. He uses the designation for Christianity of the way, which would have been how they knew Christianity. So he's trying, like he did with the Athenians when he was in Athens, he's trying with these people in Jerusalem because he cares for them. He loves them. And then as we go through his testimony, which we're not going to read, but has the same basic components with some things added to it, there is a, there is a focal point of that testimony. So when I say the testimony was not the sensationalism of it that grounded Paul, what was it about Paul's testimony that grounded him? What was it that, that enabled him to face an angry mob with a clear and a sound mind? Where did he pull that out of? What was it in that testimony that was the big deal to Paul? And the big deal to Paul in that testimony is that God was pursuing him, even when Paul was not pursuing God. Now you say, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is, folks, this is not a testimony about him finding God. This is not a testimony about Paul kind of came to his senses about religion and finally knew the way. This is a testimony that Paul is saying, well, I'm Christians. He says this in his testimony. I was ruthlessly doing to this. It wasn't the Christians that made the impact on me. It was God himself that made the impact on me because God was pursuing me. And in verses 21 and 22, he says that God gives him a purpose. And the purpose is this, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the end of his testimony, and verse 22 says, up to this word. What word was it? It was the word Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him, then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Isn't that amazing? They're ready to tear him limb from limb. They save him. The Romans have to save him. And he asked to speak to the crowd. They all quiet down. They listen to his entire testimony. And then with one word, and by the way, Paul knew that was going to happen. He, he wasn't dumb when he did that. He knew that up to that point, and here's the courage, folks, the courage to say the one thing that's going to set the whole thing on fire. I mean, I look at it and I just think to myself, you got a great testimony there. Why not just say, go and I will send you far away to preach my words? <laughs> Why not just say that? It could have bought him more time. But he said Gentiles because that was the specific direction the Holy Spirit had given him. And Paul's courage didn't come from a dumbness 
of just kind of ending his life. It didn't come from a fatalism. It came from a groundedness that, hey, you know what? God pursued me. So therefore, I can take another step because God's with me until the end. And when the end comes, he doesn't leave. I'm with him forever. And until that time, I can live with courage. So as we end, how can you apply this message? I mean, there's a lot here. A lot we didn't read, but I tried to pull out specific parts. Where do you need courage? Instead of kind of just assuming there might be this reservoir of courage that you can draw from, why don't you take these two principles, specific guidance from the Holy Spirit, not just when you need it, but that we are regularly hearing from the Holy Spirit. We are regularly being guided by the Holy Spirit. We are regularly sensing the nudges from the Holy Spirit to do those things and to act on those things and believe those things that we know we should do. You say, well, I don't, I'm not really familiar with that language. As a matter of fact, I think it's probably not uncommon for people to even say, I'm just a little uncomfortable with that language. That's okay. We're not talking about some weird experience here. What we're talking about is that the Holy Spirit of God who lives within you, if you're a Christian, points to the Word of God, as some people would say, to reveal the Son of God. But the Holy Spirit of God is guiding. So I want to press in again. I've asked this three or four times. When was the last time you, not your family, not your parents, not your pastor, not your spiritual leaders, not your teacher, not this, not that. You personally, teenager, kid, mom or dad, older person, person on live stream. When was the last time you personally received a specific word from the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit's alive and active. He's God. Let's not treat him as the it or as the lesser. He's God. He wants to guide you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to grow in that relationship with you. So when's the last time you had a specific word? And I want you to do this too. I want you to think about your own testimony. And I want you to think about it not in terms of you finding God. I mean, yes, you had to accept, you had to repent of your sin and trust Christ. But I want you to think of it in terms of God finding you. Yeah, you, you didn't have the same thing as Paul where you're out doing all these wicked, awful things, perhaps. But God finding you and letting that absorb into your soul that this God, this God came after me and I trusted him, but it was God who did that. It was God who went after Adam and said, Adam, where are you? And it was God who came after you. And God who found you. And in the same God who walks beside you. And that assurance can provide courage and grounding when you need it. So as we close today and as I pray and as a moment we sing at the end, I ask you to think about this, to say to God, God, help me to have courage with blank. Help me to have courage with blank. It's okay to say, right now, God, I don't feel like I fear anything. That's okay. 
but I'm, I'm, I'm standing under the word today, and, and the word says fear not a whole bunch of times, and I know I, I, I'm going to need courage, so I want you to help me to have courage today with blank, and maybe it's with my life, with my walk. Maybe you need to say, I, I don't know that I've had the recognition or the consciousness of a specific word from the Holy Spirit in weeks, years, months. I need to hear from you. You say, where do I go? What do I do? Great place to go should be to get right into the Bible. Go home, read a psalm. Read the psalm they talked about today. Get in the Bible. Hear from the Holy Spirit of God. Think about your own testimony being grounded in gospel grace. I read this in study as well. C.S. Lewis said, you only know the strength of the wind when you try to walk against it. You know, the truth is, as we come to the end of 2020 and 2021, so many jokes have been made about 2020 um, with, with hints of truth in them, just kind of putting it to the past and so on and so forth. It, it's very true that some of us are just tired of walking against the wind. In more than just cultural events and all that, we're just tired of walking against the wind. We just want an easier path. We're, we're just tired of that. And I don't think it's wrong I think there's something wrong if you just want a rough life. I think there's something wrong with that. But I think it's wrong to just get into this mode where it's like, I don't care, I don't, I don't want to put, I just want ease. All you have to know, the strength of the wind, is when you try to walk against it. Some of you just need to turn around and just say, I have to exercise courage. I have to start walking into the wind again. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, you know the people here, live stream, people listen later, the specific things they're going through. So I would ask you today, God, that we would receive that specific guidance from the Holy Spirit, as Paul did, and that we would be grounded in our testimony. Not Paul's testimony, our testimony. And for those who don't have a testimony of being saved by grace, I pray that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.